coming towards the end of it, actually. I think this is number six out of eight. Um, so we're going to be having a look at uh, chapter seven and eight today. Um, and I've called this the foundations of longevity. Start by asking this morning, all of those folk, this is a bit of a personal question. All of those folk who are, are over 70, I'd love you to just raise your hand. Look at that. We have got, we've got three over 70 at the minute. You know, we've got Jim's not here and Jack and Sheila are away in Thailand. I just wanted to start by saying, do you know what? It's a real, real honor. And it's a privilege having, um, having everyone at Freedom Church, but especially having people of this age and caliber still running hard for God. Yeah, just seeing their authentic faith, okay, their love for God as they continue to run with integrity and, um, and vibrance in their walks with Jesus. You know, I just, just looking at, at who we've got, you know, Jack and Sheila being away, uh, just a great couple, probably the most evangelistic couple in our church. I think about uh, Barb's as she goes and serves at Baby Basics regularly, and there's just, there's just such a caliber here. And it doesn't happen in every church, because actually when we think about longevity, when we think about running this race till the end, it's not commonplace to see people make it to the end in their walk with God. I was looking at this from a church perspective, trying to look at some stats um, about this, about longevity, specifically looking at churches, um, how many churches have closed maybe in the last 10 years, and I found a, uh, a well-produced um, group of results and stats from 2005 to 2013, and this was put together by a guy called Peter Briley, and this was actually UK church statistics. And he has found out there's about 1,550 churches that have closed in that seven-year period. So over a seven-year period, when we look at the church and we see, are the churches managing to survive? Okay, what's their lifespan like? We've seen 1,550 churches close in the UK. And there are certain denominations that are, are, are decreasing more rapidly than others. Actually, the good news is, more than 1,550 churches have sprang up in that period of time, okay? Actually, we are seeing the church um, increase. But actually, even more shockingly, I started looking at longevity in, in personal lives. And I started to look. America has a lot more stats on this than we do. And I found some stats on American pastors. So these are people leading churches in America. And the stats are shocking, it says that 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. 50% would leave the ministry. And most statistics say that it's 60 to 80% of those who enter the ministry will still not, will, will not still be in it 10 years later. They won't be in it 10 years later. And that's due to things like moral failure, spiritual and emotional burnout going on in the lives of guys leading churches um, and ladies leading churches. And do you know, it's shocking. When you look at the stats there, this is people leading the churches that I'm looking at. But I think they give us a really helpful perspective um, that actually, what does it mean to keep running with zeal and passion to the end? This is not an easy thing to do. To build a work that lasts is not easy. Churches close, ministries end. And here we have, in these chapters of Ezra, chapter 7 and 8, we see Ezra actually making the journey to Jerusalem. 
He's making that journey to Jerusalem, to the temple that's being completed under uh, Zerubbabel. And he's looking to build the foundations of a nation that lasts the course. He's looking to put in some of those key foundations for them as a nation. And as Chris pointed out last week, as he was looking at the man, Ezra, Ezra was this guy, he was from a priestly line. He was a scribe, he was... um, His lineage was actually quite amazing. Okay, we get to see his lineage in chapter 7. But the fact is, within his lineage, he could see that the last high priest, it was Sariah, that reigned in Jerusalem before it was brought down, was brutally murdered. And this would have been a constant reminder of the past of the nation of Israel. This constant reminder that this remnant was taken into captivity. And it all came about because they stopped listening to God. They stopped obeying what he was asking them to do. And ultimately, they were punished for that, for not listening. And they were taken into that captivity. And Ezra knows, he's a priest, he knows that God's people have been uh, exposed to a totally different culture and different gods. By this point in time, though, the Babylonian Empire had come and gone. The Medes have defeated the Babylonians and then they were defeated by the Persians who were the ruling power of that day. And there's been quite a lot of change happening in this period of time. But what is clear that we see from chapter 7 and 8, we see it from the man Ezra, that he has managed to keep his love for Yahweh. He's managed to keep his love burning for God. He's passionate for God. And he's knowledgeable about God. And he knows the significance of building the right foundations in place. He knows that heading back to Jerusalem was the next, it was the first key principle for them as a people to get back to this place that God had given them. He knew the next key point was to build that temple so that they had a place to worship Yahweh. And here we land with those two things having happened. There's people back in Jerusalem. The temple has been built. There's a place for them to worship. But he now has a huge task. He now has to lay the foundations for the people, for their hearts. Laying a foundation for their faith. You know, it's about finding out what are those things that their identity of the people Okay, he wants to be able to teach what is their identity, what is the posture they should be in as they return to worship Yahweh. And he doesn't want to repeat, he doesn't want to go back and repeat some of those mistakes of the past. And so I want to just look at three key things within these chapters. And I want to focus on the first one mainly, but three key foundations that I think we can see that he sees as significant. And this isn't exhaustive, okay, when we're looking at foundations, but here, these are the things that I think he worked with that helped him to build foundations so that he could see a nation, a city, generations to come, continue to last the course. And so the first one, and Chris mentioned it, was about being a people of the words. We read in Ezra 7, verse 6, that he was a teacher that he was well-versed in the law of Moses, the God of Israel had given. And Chris Helfley drew out this fact, this point that 
in his preach that he was a passionate lover of the word of God. He was well skilled and, and versed in his understanding of the word. And as I said, he must have been doing this whilst in captivity. Okay, whilst under other rulers, other kings. He was still continuing to seek God, to study the words. And as I said, he understood the temple had to be built. And now this time, this era was for him. This was about his passions and his gifts being used right at this point. This was God's perfect time and for him to come into almost the play. God had him set up to come and to be used at this point in time. But he knew this wasn't just about him loving the word of God. That wasn't job done, otherwise the job would have been done. His job was to bring a passion that the people, the nation of Israel would catch when it comes to loving God and loving his word. He wanted to prepare them so that they had a hunger and a thirst for more of God, to know more of him. And so he preached and he lived it out as he preached with great authenticity and great passion. And we read, I'm afraid I'm going to head to, to Nehemiah again, as I did last time. Can't stop doing that. We're going to have a little look at chapter 8 in Nehemiah. Because Ezra's, Ezra's uh, mentioned here quite significantly. There's something significant, significant going on. So we're going to read that, Ezra chapter 8, verse 1. It says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! And then they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. What's going on here? This is absolute transformation for the nation of Israel. This is a point in time that the Jewish race looked back on with such favor. This was revival, breaking out in the nation of Israel. Ezra's passion, his diligence, his studying of the word, his interpreting of the word, his copying out diligently of scripture is causing the people of God to thirst deeply. And we hear it for long periods of time. They want him to exposit the word of God from morning till noon. They don't care. They are thirsty. And we hear that they wept as they heard and they understood the deep truths of their God. Ezra didn't just bring a, a knowledge of the word. He brought an experience of God to them. 
He brought an experience that caused the people of God to repent and to bow down their faces to him. This was revival. It wasn't just one man who had a passion. We know it's revival because it broke out amongst the people. There was a hunger and thirst that changed not just one or two, but the entire race here. Do you know, they weren't complaining about the preach running over by 10 minutes. There was a cry for more and more. We want to hear more. Yes, Grant said he was was a pretty good preacher, I suspect. But there wasn't an apathetic spirit either of, do you know, I can't, can't bother to pick up this book today. Can't bother to read it. There was no apathy there. This was deep, deep hunger. Do you know, and if we're honest, I'm honest. I have a long way to go in developing that sort of hunger that we see here in Nehemiah 8. This hunger where they're weeping over the word. Weeping with sadness and with joy. They just want to spend all day learning about who God is. Experiencing him as he speaks deep truths into their hearts and their lives. They want to dwell in the power of this word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Revival has hit this nation. This nation that's been honestly in absolute ruin. Even the temple, as we look at it, is a far cry from what the old temple looked like. But something has happened in God's people here on that day. Something has changed significantly that has transformed their hearts to have such a hunger and a passion. And this is when we catch this sort of hunger for the word of God. Extraordinary things happen. Supernatural things happen. And it started here with one man, Ezra, as he diligently sought to study scripture. And I want to touch on another man who diligently sought to understand scripture. And it's funny, as, we, as, as Ryan was coming in today, he said, happy Reformation week. And actually on Tuesday, on the 31st of October, we are celebrating, I don't know if you know, we're celebrating a massive key event of a key figure 500 years ago. 500 years ago. That started in Germany and spread across the nations. We're celebrating Martin Luther, if you didn't know by now. And so I want to just talk a little bit about who this man was. What was it that he caught that was so significant? A revival broke out. So who was he? He was a man who lived, he um, fairly intelligent. He went to school to study law. And they say he studied it in like the minimum amount of time that anyone could have studied it. So he was obviously a clever guy. He was on his way home from, from, I guess, university one day. And he got caught in this huge thunderstorm. And a bolt of lightning struck very close to him. And he was knocked off his feet. And he cried out to God. And he said, he declared that he would commit himself to becoming a monk and enter the ministry if God kept him. It was an encounter that he had there and then. He knew God had called him into this, and he responded. 
and he reacted. He went into the ministry straight away. He gave up all of his belongings. That's what monks had to do. And he started studying the word of God. And as he studied it, as he practiced it, as he lived it out, he recognized that what the church at the time, the Catholic church at the time, was preaching, was telling people, he was ashamed. He thought there's corruption here in the church. Because what was happening at that time was to be a monk, you did have to be educated. The Bible was still in Latin. So lay people, most common people, could not read the Bible. They could only access the Bible through the priests who understood and read Latin. At that point in time, the Catholic Church was building lots, building lots of buildings. They wanted lots of money to build these buildings. And their theology that was coming out, they were selling what was called indulgences. So essentially, uh, one of your loved ones dies, and you want to make sure that they're going to heaven. So what they made you do is they made you pay for an indulgence. And by paying for this indulgence, you got this piece of paper which said this person's sins are now taken away because you've paid the price for them. If you sinned badly, you could also pay for indulgences. So these were things that were being handed out to people, but they were handed out the cost of an indulgence. They said the average cost for a working class person, it was six months wages. Six months wages. And people were so fearful, they had a healthy fear of hell. They understood that if they didn't know God, they were going to go to hell. But the church was corrupt. We've seen it throughout history where there's been abuses. And Martin Luther saw this. And he was a man skilled, just like Ezra was, in understanding the word of God. And he looked at his parishioners and he knew this was wrong. And he thought, I've got to stand up to this. And so he did. He, um, he was so stirred by actually quite a few verses in the Bible. But the main one was Romans 1 or Habakkuk 2 uh, were the two key verses for him that really got him. Romans 1 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Luther knew that there was nothing, no good work, no amount of money that could ever be good enough to merit salvation. There was nothing that they could buy, no indulgence that was going to merit salvation. It was faith alone that led to salvation. This is the gospel at its very core. And he went on arguing lots of doctrines that were happening in the church of uh, the Catholic Church. You know, he basically argued and got himself into a lot of trouble, but he was arguing the fact that the church and the Pope were both fallible. Okay, not infallible is what was being told. He argued that people didn't need to go through a priest to access God. But we've all been made royal priests. He was arguing that it's about a personal relationship with God. And he famously nailed 95 theses to the church door, which is what we're celebrating on the 31st of October. The date, these 95 theses were nailed to the church door in German so that the common lay person could understand the doctrine 
that Luther was proclaiming. He went on. He understood that this wasn't just about him understanding. He understood that actually this was about the whole people coming to know Jesus Christ. He didn't want them to not be able to understand the word of God or access it. So what did he do? He translated the Bible into German. And he went to the printing press with it. And thousands of copies started coming out of the Bible that your everyday person could read. And that's, it's hard for us to grasp because it's just so easy for us. But these very doctrines, the Reformation, this reformed theology, this reformed theology that we now live under, that are some of our key foundations that we live by, have been caused by this era, this period in time. As one man chose to stand up, he had a love for the words, he had a love for God, and he knew that what was going on was wrong. And he knew that people would be saved if they could understand. And revival broke out amongst the people. Revival broke out as they started to understand the grace of God. That it wasn't about buying something. It was about their faith. This is exciting. Do you not think? Just as it happened in Ezra's day, revival broke out as the nation of Israel realized who was their God. Who he was. Who he'd made them to be. And you've got Luther, 500 years ago. Revival breaks out because the word of God is preached in an understandable way for the people. What's interesting is the stats I gave you earlier on churches and pastors. When we look at studying the words, they become even starker. Okay? I read this stat. 70% of church pastors said that the only time they spend studying the word is when they're preparing their sermons. I want to say to you, Freedom Church, if we want to see this city reached and change, then I want to suggest that understanding God and his word is crucial to that. Do you know, our society just thinks that the word of God is totally irrelevant and totally outdated. They think it's a book of rules. And regulations. But we know differently, don't we? We know that the word of God is this beautiful love story of freedom. And unless we proclaim that, unless we help the people to understand what this beautiful story is all about, what God Almighty has done for them, we're not going to see this city reached. Unless we as a people are in love with him and in love with his words, we're never going to sustain our walk or reach in this city. So I want to ask, how do we build this into our lives? Because, as I've mentioned already, we know it's not easy. Okay, we're pulled in all sorts of directions with our lives, being busy and kids and all sorts of things and and. It's not easy trying to find that balance, is it, at times, to get that time to study. Because actually, sitting down and studying the Word, isn't, it doesn't all just come really easily. Wow, look at that. That's amazing. Met an accountant God. No. That's not my experience of studying the Word of God. But there's a clue here. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10 says, For Ezra 
set his heart. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He set his heart on this task, folks. This wasn't just an academic exercise of setting your mind to do something like we so often do. The gravity of this decision goes much further. It's a life-changing consequence as we set our hearts to do this. I know about, I don't know about you, but for me, when I set my mind to do something, often I'm failing. But when I set my heart to do it, it's a little bit like setting my heart to be a good husband. Okay? You know, in sickness and in health. To the end. I set my heart on this marriage to my wife that I love. I set my heart on being a parent and loving my children no matter what happens. I set my heart on those things. And this is the same sort of consequence. It's setting your heart on relationship with your God, your Savior. You're committed no matter what. And for Ezra, we get to see that actually he had to set his heart. This wasn't some kind of matrix download. I'll just plug in. Boom, there we go. I've got it. It's not how it happens. It wasn't something that was just gifted to him. He had to set his heart. It required graft. It required perseverance. Just like being a husband or a wife requires graft and perseverance. Being a parent is not easy. And as both Ezra and Martin Luther understood, this wasn't about training up the most intelligent people in our society to learn the words. God's word was for all. Okay? This is what they were interested in. It was for all people. As the Spirit came on them, all were baptized. It's not just about the preaching team and I'll turn up to church on a Sunday and I'll listen. You're not going to see transformation happen if that's your mindset when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God is the way that we get to hear and experience Him. It's where we get to live in the truth. It's where we develop and grow in that personal relationship with him. And I want to encourage you to start to look for opportunities and times to, to study. For me, I know I've done quite a lot of studying of the word. And I thrive when I go away and I study with others. It is easier to study with others. And I want to tell you about an experience I had. I've studied with lots and under lots of teachers. But one time really stands out for me. And uh, we went off to study John's Gospel. And there was a guy called Ian Galloway who was teaching. And we had a week. We had, it was great. What an opportunity. We had four days of teaching on John as we studied it. And there was 12 of us. And the difference here was often it can feel quite academic. You're learning. But there was something here. I encountered God almost every day. I felt like I grew in relationship with him and grew to know, to know more of him as we studied. And it was life-giving. I came away, and the guys will tell you, came away buzzing. 
over how God had moved, over his word, over how amazing the word of God is. And that is what we want to cultivate in Freedom Church. We want to cultivate opportunities where you can study the word of God. I love the fact that actually we have a large group of ladies who go off to study at BSF um, every week. You know, it's great. I want to encourage you, keep finding opportunities to study the word of God. It's why we use the four points. Okay? It's a great resource for understanding, for people understanding the gospel. Okay? For our kids understanding the gospel, our kids have got it. It's a great resource. It's why we have Alpha courses going on right now to help people understand who God is, what he's done for them, to help them understand the importance of his words. It's why we have seminar mornings like last week, which I heard were brilliant. Because actually we want to give opportunities for people to be trained and equipped with the word of God, to exposit the word of God to others. It's why within our life groups, they're designed to be a safe place that everyone can have a go at leading a study. This isn't about the leaders leading the study. This is about the group being a place where everyone gets to expose the words. It's why we're going to be looking at, um, we're off this week, off to London to some prayer days, and we're looking again at using there's a guy called Phil Moore as part of the New Ground Churches, and he runs um, a theology course. And we're going we're gonna to look into that and think, can we get that here in Freedom Church? I know they do it in my parents' church. They have about 70 people who come and study this, and it's an excellent, excellent resource. But we want to create opportunities. This man, Phil Moore, is a phenomenal. Those of you who have read his books, he is a phenomenal mind in helping us to understand the word of God, okay? And so we want to create a culture and an environment that makes it very easy to keep learning about your God, our God, okay? That's the first point. That was the majority. Just a couple of other things then as we look at these two chapters. Humility. Ezra uses a phrase throughout these two chapters. He uses this phrase six times in total over these two chapters. And he actually starts by talking about it in the singular and moves to using it in a corporate sense. He says, the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And then he uses upon us. Okay. Um, so Ezra 7, 6 says, there, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was, or, he was already scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord of Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his requests. The king granted him all his requests. Do you know, we see amazing things happen over these chapters with Ezra. As I've just talked about, they're seeing revival break out in Nehemiah chapter 8. But in this point here now, the king has basically turned around to Ezra and said, you can take whoever you want back to Jerusalem. Not only that, but I'm going to give you as much gold and silver as you can possibly carry, tons of it, literally, across the desert. And do you know what? I'm going to offer you an army to escort you through. And he obviously gets this remnant of people back to Jerusalem, and revival breaks out. And 
I think when we look at this man and you look at the achievements that happened under him, they're phenomenal. If we're to look at it in worldly eyes, we see, even in godly eyes, just phenomenally successful. That's what he was. Phenomenally successful. And as a leader, you're in this constant battle, I think, of thinking about and wrestling with the praise of man. Okay? And I think it happens across all sectors. But actually, when good things happen, when fruitful times happen in your church, the temptation, and we do it in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our home life, the temptation is to take the credit, if we're honest. Are you with me on that? Is that just me? Temptation is to take the credit. Guys, I was involved in this one. That was my idea. And yet Ezra, he's grasped something. It's got to have come, I think, from his love and passion for the word. But he's grasped the fact that God is in control. He is the one who's over all these things. He is the one who's setting the agenda. He's the one that is making everything happen. And so that's why six times he says this, the hand of God was upon him or upon us. Because he knows he's secure in his identity. He's secure in the core that God has given him. In fact, the reality is he recognizes that he's just joining hands with what God is doing. He sees how God is moving and he joins in. And that's how he views it. Not that he has established and he's the one who's done this. He constantly acknowledges the Lord's God and his work. He stays humble in this. He refuses to take the credit for what's going on. He refuses to get puffed up over himself. And he continues at every opportunity to exalt God. In all the successes and in the failures. So we're going to come on to this. But we see in chapter 8 that they are, they've started on their way back to Jerusalem. And they get somewhere after three days. And he suddenly realizes, do you know what? We don't have enough scribes. We don't have enough temple servants. And so he has to send people back to go get more people. And they're in this quite dangerous place. God's called them. God's called them to do this. And so even in those bad times where you think, oh my words, what are we doing? The PA's not working. Nothing seems to be happening. In the bad times, you can look at it and go, do you know what? This is his. He's over this. He's in control. And there's a peace and there's a calmness that comes as we humble ourselves before him. Because it stops us from trying to pedal really quickly and make things happen ourselves, doesn't it? When we, when we live this one out, when we recognize it fully, when we acknowledge that he is the one who's doing these things, it stops us from trying to make things happen. And that's for every area of our lives, guys. If we continue to exalt him in everything we do, we will stop pushing our agenda. We will stop trying to make things happen and trust him. 
that he's spoken, that he's called us to do these things. He recognises that actually the responsibility that he's to carry is to do what God's called him to do. And so the wrong things aren't weighing him down. The wrong responsibilities aren't on his shoulders. I want to say this is key for us as a church. As we were called to Liverpool, as I stood in my living room and God said, I want you to go to Liverpool, what I was doing there was joining hands with God Almighty, who has a plan and a purpose for this city and for this nation and for the nations. This wasn't me deciding, do you know what, we're going to take Liverpool. This was a joining of hands. And you know, recognising this for us as a church, recognising who is responsible fundamentally. We have a leadership team. But I want to say fundamentally, if you, if you put your faith in us, and I'm not saying don't put your faith in us, but if you put your sole faith in us, you're going to get very disappointed. Because we're going to let you down. We're going to make mistakes. We've got to keep putting our faith in him. The one who is over this. The one who is the head of his church. We need to keep staying humble, acknowledging his work and his power and his plans if we want to stay the course, Freedom Church, in the good times and in the bad. And as I said, if we truly grasp this one, if we truly grasp that he's in charge, I think we're going to carry more joy and more peace along with us as we live it out. That's going to be the things that define us if we stay humble and acknowledge him. We get defined by joy and peace. Lastly, faith. Chapter 8, verse 21. I'm just going to read it out for you. It says, There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because uh, we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. We've got the first two things here, longevity for the church, a love for the word of God, humility before God, And thirdly, I think faith. We know that the first six chapters focus on Zerubbabel, building the temple. And here in chapter 8, Ezra's making that journey. And this is no small task, okay? He's gathering loads of people. That's what we find out in chapter 8. And with women and children and and different roles that he's gathered, there's probably about 5,000 people that he is venturing across this desert in. And as I said, the Babylonians are no longer in rule. The Medes have come, they've wiped out the Babylonians, the Persians are in control. And um, they're crossing the desert, which was known to be just an incredibly dangerous place. There was loads of pillaging and thieving and murdering. And not only that, they're carrying tons of silver and gold with them. And you know what? They're like sitting ducks. That's what they appear to be, sitting ducks. You know, you get someone walking through, I don't know, do I name a place in Liverpool? No. A part of Liverpool. Toxteth. I wasn't going to say it, but thank you, Sylvia. 
And you could be a sitting duck if you don't know where you are. And these guys appear to be sitting ducks. They actually choose to refuse the king's army to escort them across the desert. Because in this instance, Ezra believes that God will protect them. And we don't hear much about this journey at all. We don't find out what obstacles they faced. But we do find, just at the very end of that, he answered their prayer. He answered their prayer. It's interesting because later on in Nehemiah, we find out that Nehemiah accepts the king's army and protection as they venture over to Jerusalem. And there's no indication that Nehemiah was sinning or lacking in faith for doing so. And that can raise a question when we're talking about this concept of faith. You know, when is it wrong to use human means in addition to trusting the Lord? When might that be wrong? What What is faith? What does it look like? And I would say this, I think the normal pattern is to trust God while thankfully using the means that he provides around us. So it means when we're traveling on the roads, we pray for protection, but you fasten your seatbelt and you drive carefully. Okay? It's not about a silly faith here that we're talking about. It means when we're talking about illness and ailments, we want to pray for, for healing, don't we? But you go to the doctor and you take the prescribed medicine that you've been given by the doctor. That's not lacking faith. That's using the means that God has provided around us. It's when you're going for a job. Do you know, you want to pray for it, but you also want to prepare. You want to prepare a a resume and you want to dress appropriately and you want to go for that job interview. And I would say that God normally expects us to use the means that he provides along with faith in him. Okay? I want to say that sometimes using human means are going to lead us to points where we stop trusting in him. And I would say this is an individual matter. Faith is about hearing. Okay? It's about expecting that God's given you something. So, for example, uh, George Muller, you know, he believed that he wanted to demonstrate his faith by praying for orphanages, praying that the funding was going to come in. He didn't advertise that he needed finance for his orphanages. Was that right? Was that wrong? Well, do you know what? He was given faith for that, and the money came in. But it wouldn't have been wrong for him to advertise that there was a need in the orphanages. And yet in this time, he decided this was what God was calling him to do in faith. Hebrews 1.11 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I want to say faith is going to look different for different people. Okay, It's going to look different for Freedom Church than it looks for other churches in Liverpool because it's essentially believing God for the things that you think he's given you or us as a church. But I want to say faith is absolutely crucial because it pleases God more than anything else. The Christian life is totally, utterly dependent upon faith. We stand on this foundation of faith. We live on a foundation of faith. Faith, I want to say, is loved and honoured by God more than any other single thing. And the Bible teaches us that faith is the only approach that we have to God. 
our posture towards him is one of faith, of believing him. You know, we know that no man's sins are forgiven, no man goes to heaven, no man has assurance of peace and happiness until he has faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's what Luther was proclaiming. Faith. Faith alone. And you know, I want us as a church to be recognized by this faith. For doing those things maybe that some people look at and go, you what? Are you crazy? Have you really thought this through? But we've heard. And we've responded in faith. Do you know, the last thing I want us to become is a church that just settles. I want us to grow in faith for healing, for salvation, for transformation in ourselves and others. And without faith being lived out and practiced in Freedom Church, we are not going to last the course, guys. We're not going to last the course. So let's be people who love the words, who look for opportunities to engage and to grow in the word of God. Let's be people who exalt him, who stay humble before him, who acknowledge him and his work in our lives. And let's be a people of faith, who hear him and respond and move in faith.